Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. The amount of women in London who flirt with their own husbands is perfectly scandalous. It looks so bad. It is simply washing one's clean linen in public. Oscar Wilde. <laughs> Oscar Wilde, just, just because he says things like perfectly scandalous doesn't mean he was clever. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London? Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. People are morally outraged with what's going on. Well, I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, didn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square really would have a gallery. place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. <laughs> the hell is that? <laughs> the man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You snake through the city, what, amassing yourself in the sight sounds. And for the Jewish community who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced that is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. People frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Hello, it's Friday, February the 8th, 2013. I'm in Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud, a podcast of news, views, and curiosities from London, UK. You can download the show free on iTunes, hook up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, or indeed tweet me at Londonist Sound. You can also, uh, of course, find us on Instagram, and that's Londonist Out Loud. You can find pictures there of all our guests, including my guest today, who is Chris Coltrane. He's a former Londonist contributor. He's a political comedian and activist. He uh, runs Lullatics Political Comedy Club and just took his first solo show to Edinburgh. And that show is called Activism is Fun, Chris. Yeah, can I just say, I, I, want to cu- I want to kiss your voice. That's an amazing voice you've got. That is husky. Where did you get it from? Well, Have think, you been working on it? It's amazing. I think my throat in the usual fashion. Um, <laughs> well, this could be a lively show. We're, in, uh, we're, we're here in Soho. We're at the Soho Theatre Company. And a man has just told me he wants to uh, kiss my voice. Um, he's going to give me chocolates in a, in a minute as well. I've come prepared. I've made Oreo truffles. They're the easiest thing to make, but they win you a lot of favourite parties. All you have to do is grind up Oreos, mix them with mascarpone, and then melt Dime Bar chocolate over them. And you've got what is basically a heart attack in a ball, but maybe you'd like to try. This looks amazing. Okay, well, I'm looking at a, a Tupperware uh, or other branded 
<laughs> plastic box. And Other it, plastic is available. It's absolutely teeming. Yes, get, let's get one of these in before we go any further. Cool. Well, there you are. Okay, the, uh, the Oreo chocolate. Cheers. Cheers, Chris. Mm, that is to die for. <laughs> I'm now going to attempt to present the show with a face full of chocolate. <laughs> Bang! In the creative heart of London, Soho Theatre is a major new writing theatre and a writer's development organisation of national significance with a programme spanning theatre, comedy, cabaret and writer's events and home to a lively bar, Soho Theatre is one of the most vibrant venues on London's cultural scene that's what my intro text says but it's true isn't it this really is a happening place absolutely uh, it's such a pleasure to come here of an evening and just it feels like Edinburgh you can just come here and just see three shows in the evening and you know to go to the theatre in most places in the West End will cost you 40, 50 pounds um, but here you can see three shows 10 pounds each in an evening and there's some famous names on the posters on the wall there. Uh, the uh, famous uh, tax-related comedian uh, Jimmy Carr just behind <laughs> you. Uh, this is a nice little bar as well we've got going on here. This looks like a, a decent place to hang out of a night. Yeah, it's a lovely place to come if you're interested in star spotting. Um, and so many great comedians come here and try out new stuff, like Alexis Sells doing his show here at the moment. Stuart Lee comes here to run in new material, uh, Eddie Izzard. And there's so many fantastic up-and-coming comedians doing hour-long shows. And you, 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 of course, are a comedian as well. Stand-up comedian by night, writer by day, and a thorn in politicians' backsides whenever the opportunity <laughs> arises. <laughs> well, I give it a go. I, I like to puncture the rich and the powerful and the evil. But you've, you've got very, obviously a very strong political leaning in what you do, but you've got a particular set of rules in the way that you run, particularly your comedy uh, nights. Uh, this is a lolitics. So I run a political comedy night in London. It's called Lolitics. It's on the third Tuesday of every month, and it's at the Black Heart in Camden. Uh, and it's a political comedy night, but it's also a new material night. It's quite hard to find places to do new political material in London, or indeed anywhere, because you just never know whether the audience is going to care. Like, if the material doesn't go well, it might be because it's not, not very good, it might be because you didn't deliver it well, or it might just be that the audience just isn't into that sort of thing. So I wanted a venue where I could try my new material, and then if it fails, then I know it's because it's not very good. Uh, and if it goes well, then, you know, happy days. But then I can take that material that I know works out onto the circuit and try and make people laugh with it, you know. Um, but I put rules in place at Lolitics which in a way are just a formality because I wouldn't book nasty acts anyway but the rules are basically no ironic racism or sexism and no rape jokes um, in return oh and also um, the acts aren't allowed to pick on anyone in the audience you know you're not allowed to bring anyone on stage be nasty to anyone but in return the audience isn't allowed to heckle there's no heckling they have to just be quiet and listen which uh, I know can be difficult because you come out on stage and start talking about Boris Johnson and you just want to go boo boo kill it kill it with fire but uh, so that, that's not that's not heckling as such though is it uh, well I suppose well that's an interesting question it depends how you define heckling like in one sense heckling is shouting out you're rubbish you know and having a go at the comedian but also I mean just joining in is a form of heckling like if if someone has material and they've written it and they've practiced it and there's timing and you're trying to get a point across then when someone joins in then that can contribute but it can also hinder especially when you're trying out new material and you just want to know whether it works um and especially if people are it, it can be easy to just join in with your opinions at a gig like lolitics because it's very friendly and it can be easy for the audience to think you know we're all a community and we are but if someone's talking then I had to put that rule in place because people would just start joining in and offering their opinions and that, that's lovely in a sense but the comedians are there to try out their material and that's the priority 
So that's terribly finely balanced then, because it seems to me that part of the job of a stand-up is to kind of seduce part of the audience or uh, even sometimes to make the audience feel a little bit in awe of them. But it's done usually in a very conversational way, in a very intimate way. So maintaining the respect for the fourth wall whilst breaking that down at the same time, that's that's terribly difficult. (laughs) Yeah, it's a balance. And it never started out like that. I mean, all these rules grew organically through working out what we wanted to achieve. I never set out to think, right, we're not going to let the audience talk. And actually in the interval we always have a competition i give away a, a bottle of booze and um and books i don't like keeping books once i've read a book i like giving it away and i like having a book sat on a bookshelf collecting dust i think a book's wasted if it's not being used so once i've read a book i give it away um and so we have a competition at lolitics where i ask a question and we get the answers in the interval and then we have a conversation about them so people get the chance to have the back and forth then so i'll ask questions you know like um something like um if you had to redesign the way that elections happened how would you do it and like the funniest answer will win a prize so you know people get the chance to get involved and be creative then so it's not like i'm saying to people come be quiet and then leave like it's just that when the acts are talking then you listen it's about respect by the sense of it yeah absolutely we like respect enforced respect well, mm. uh, we've got you. You were nearly selling it up until <laughs> enforced respect. There's a whole bunch of things that you're involved with. I know activism, social politics, f- uh, feminism, civil liberties, science, and scepticism. I notice you are wearing a t-shirt covered with skeletons. There's a sort of a mass graveyard or a burial ground or something <laughs> like that going on here. And you want to talk about Lewisham NHS? <laughs> oh God. That's the best introduction to a subject that I've ever heard. <laughs> this isn't a tribute. This isn't a tribute to austerity that I'm wearing. We've got a lot of austerity stories today, actually. There was a 25,000-person march in support of keeping the Lewisham A&E intact, and the, the PR machine of the National Health Service has, has kicked in. Uh, what have they been saying? Well, you know, all the newspapers have been saying about it that um, Jeremy Hunt's recommendation that it just be cut was a partial victory. And I, I just think that's spin. I just think that's absolutely not true. I think this is just a classic Tory tactic. Like, you don't close something straight away. You don't privatise something straight away because people will be angry. But what you can do is just make a cut here. You can make a cut there. And you can uh, reduce the funding here. And you can slowly run the service into the ground so that it becomes something that people don't like anymore. People just look at it and go, well, it, 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 it's awful now. I can't rely on it. And that allows the Tories to come in and say, well, look how bloated the public sector is. Look how inefficient the public sector is look how greedy the workers are and that allows then the private sector the shiny private sector to swoop in um if things were run properly if things were run with proper funding and proper care then we wouldn't need to have we wouldn't need to have any of these cuts just if tax dodgers pay tax i'm involved in you can cut a direct action protest group and that's one of our key messages you know if if tax dodgers paid their share we wouldn't need to cut you can cut gets involved with direct action activism as well as attempts to persuade people of different viewpoints what, what sort of thing have you personally been involved with well do you know the reason i love you can cut is because it's so fun like it is such a joyous and colorful and vibrant way 
uh, to protest. Um, the very first protest we did was against Vodafone. Um, Vodafone dodged £6 billion in tax. Actually, more than that, we found out since then, but at the time, £6 billion. Um, and uh, cuts to welfare in one year were £7 billion. So Vodafone's one tax dodge could have paid for almost every cut to welfare in a year and when you drill it down to something like a simple message like that people can start to relate to it like you talk about tax avoidance people turn off it's about finance people are bored by that but when you make a direct connection between people dodging tax and services being cut people can relate to that so the first protest we did was uh was just a a fun silly thing where we got about 40 people in the vodafone on oxford street and just sat in the doorway locked arms refused to leave and we were there for the whole day and we got massive publicity like we were on sky news the guardian observer financial times uh reuters bloomberg it was massive um, and, and what were these institutions, what was their reflection of your actions? Generally kind. It was surprising. In fact, over time, even the Daily Mail generally wrote nice things about us. Um, it, it, it was a mixed bag, the Daily Mail. Sometimes they did exposés on particular members of UK Uncut, which were quite unkind. But the interesting thing about the Daily Mail is that they don't like cheaters. And so, you know, they go after the, you know, what they perceive to be the the scroungers, the cheaters, the poor, you know, what they perceive to be cheaters. But they also don't like it when the ultra rich cheat because they their market is the middle classes and the middle classes in their eyes are being cheated by everyone. Um, That kind of works in Yukon-Cut's favour because they'll actually write positively about people taking action against the ultra-rich avoiding tax, which is uh, interesting. The the usual sort of noises that people make in response to the contention that big companies are not paying their tax bills, that high-net-worth individuals are not paying their tax bills is a sort of a sense of anybody protesting against it being naive and the idea that the, the reality, yes, all very well, yes, that's absolutely absolutely true but when it comes down to it they're they're either going to leave the country or we'll lose something by the company pulling out or they'll move to one of our competitors or so you're you're naive would be the the vibe they'd be giving out um the problem with it is that it's incredibly complicated and that's how they get away with it um but to argue against the specific points that you raised people say they'll leave the country on paper they already have left the country their money is already in the cayman islands you know that is the point they have left the country on paper already they're just physically here they're not paying for anything that's mad so that's the argument against that um what what we need is is uh there's a campaigner called richard murphy um who uh, runs a fantastic blog on uh tax avoidance um and he's got a lot of great ideas about sort of well a, a company having to declare all of their income worldwide and being open about it so that you can't just hide stuff overseas in switzerland where you know things cannot be audited you know if you can have a worldwide openness then you know these problems can disappear um the other thing that you mentioned is about how oh, remind me what the other point was well a sort of a sense that uh, protesters are somehow idealistic and, and naive uh oh well i mean that, that that's quite possible i'm quite stupid i'll say that up front the protest itself against the lewisham cuts to the a and the maternity ward i just thought it was a really inspiring thing Twenty-five thousand people out on the street such a wonderful thing did you see any of the photos just they were such a joy to see people dressing up as nurses they had kids out there with jumpers saying i was born in Lewisham Maternity Ward um, just such a wonderful dis- display of love for a local service um, and like, I mean, I'm no sports fan I hate sport I don't know anything about sports at all I don't know nothing about it but I thought it was very cool of Millwall to reschedule their match from Saturday in the day to Friday evening so that people could go out on the march I thought that was awesome like I don't know anything about football but I get the feeling that Manchester United or a team like that probably wouldn't 
have a show of solidarity like that so I thought that was I think I'm a Millwall fan now I don't know anything about Millwall but I'm going to assume based, I want them to win everything based on that are they good do you know about football are they good <laughs> let's say go up, up, the, up the Millwall boys can you say go that on, go on chaps <laughs> Go on. Go on, chaps. Yes, that sounds like a Millwall sort of thing to say. <laughs> what about this, though? We're clearly uh, in a tricky financial position mm. as a country. And no, we're not. No, that's Hang a on. Oh, right. What? No, we're not. We're not in a... Tri- we are in a tricky financial situation because rich people are hiding their money in the Cayman Islands. There is so much wealth in the world. The ultra-rich people have become so much richer since the financial crisis. There is so much wealth in the world, it is not trickling down. It is an absolute lie to say that we are poor. It's just that the rich are hiding it. The Tobin tax... Well, no, hold on, hold on, because you're doing exactly what the Tory top brass do, which is they say we, and they mean uh, everybody including them when we know that we means us not I mean the human race Mm. but when we say we're um, in a tricky financial situation I think we as in not the super rich most certainly ah that's tangible isn't it Uh, I suppose when I say the uh, okay Yes, okay, let's refine it then. Uh, the government is literally at the moment in a tricky financial situation, but it doesn't need to be. If It, it is possible to take initiative to reclaim money. For example, the Tobin tax. Uh, Tobin tax is a brilliant idea. There are so many financial transactions on the world markets that are not taxed at all. There's zero tax. The Tobin tax is a proposal to tax them at 0.01%. Imagine how small a fraction that is of tax. It's nothing, right? It's, it's, it's barely noticeable. The Tobin tax would raise £25 billion a year from that tiny fraction. Imagine that. So, so the missing link in all of this, then, is the incentivisation for government to implement uh, taxes like that. Well, in a sense, but then incentivization makes it sound like they're salespeople. They need to have personal profit for doing well. You know, it makes it sound like they need to be on commission. Like, if you go into public office, you should just want to do it to make the world a better place, rather than personally profiting from... For example, there was a study showing that a lot of Tory MPs are going to personally profit from the various privatisations of the NHS because they are also on the board of directors or have shares in loads of the private health companies that are going to come in. Like, actually incentivization I think could be quite a dangerous thing because it means that they could potentially work in their own interests rather than in the interests of good. I don't know if that's what you meant by incentivization. It's just a dangerous word. I'd be careful of using it. Yes, no, I, I, well, I, I feel comfortable using incentivization. I think that it, the, the government should be incentivized to work in the interests, if they're not already, of the general populace. Um, I suspect because of these various directorships and because of perhaps just the, the circles within which they swim, politicians are very likely, I suspect, to have uppermost in their minds the interests of a different group of people. Yes, well, I mean, I, I, I take your point. I suppose for me, the way that you incentivise is by uh, increasing democracy, giving people a vote and a voice and uh, a, 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 and, and a choice. So you'd be up for a more sort of hands-on uh, system of democracy, would you? More referendums and that, that sort of thing? Uh, in principle, yes, but then that involves quite a radical re-overhaul of the system, which I'm interested in as a socialist. Um, a, a lot of the ideas that I have would involve quite radical change to the way things work. But So, for example... In theory, I'm in favour of more referendums. I'm in favour of people having more of a say over things, uh, especially on a local level. On the other hand, people need the time 
to be informed about the things that they're voting on. Uh, and to do that, I think people need to work less hours so that they can read more and get involved more and have the time to care. Because realistically, if you're having to work a 50-hour week to feed a family, like I think it's quite reasonable to not be that interested in politics because you're working all of your hours to care for your family. So yeah. your role, uh, and I don't mean the activism part mm. of your work, um, although it, it clearly crosses over with yeah. the stand-up comedy, but you become an educator. Oh, I think calling me an educator uh, gives me a credit that I do not deserve. <laughs> um, I, I, I found out about some stuff that makes me angry, and I want to tell people about it. Um, so I suppose so, but yeah, calling me an educator makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. I don't really. I'm a bit of an idiot. <laughs> I just want to try and make the world a better place, really. Now, I'm curious. We've had... Um, I, I remember a comment ages and ages ago on a podcast episode and the person was quite annoyed because they felt that we have a left-wing bias on the show. I think the media generally often gets accused of left-wing bias with notable exceptions. Your Lolitics events, do you find that there's much in the way of right-wing comedy? Um, I suppose it depends what you mean by right-wing comedy. Like, if you're... There are not many comedians going out there and saying, do you know what, austerity is a great thing, let's do it. There are not many people going out there doing jokes uh, in favour of war, for example. But I would argue that a lot of comedy at the moment is right-wing in that it is nasty. (laughs) <laughs> it's unkind like it, it's misogynistic it, there are a lot of uh, rape jokes around the place there is an increasing racism that comes uh, back into play on, on, on TV shows like Live of the Apollo well now hold on so, so, some of that stuff could be seen as, as ideas that come from the far right but yeah, I, yeah, I would fair, imagine fair that, that any any uh, sort of Tory ordinary Tory voter is likely to be highly offended by some of those uh, associations uh fine well i'll live I, i'm not sure if this was on live of the Apollo, but it was on tv uh jack whitehall told a joke for example uh uh, uh about south africa and how um uh, going there means that you might get aids um i paraphrase a lot um the, the joke is online it, things like that that i that there is an unkind there, there is a nastiness and for me for me the reason that i am a socialist and the reason that i am left-wing is because i want things to work for people i want public services to work for everyone my beliefs are based on compassion for people and so for me i believe that nastiness is right wing you know there is a reason that the tory party are known as the nasty party you know they are they are interested in themselves they are interested in uh not supporting people who are poor for example their a tory belief is that if people worked hard then they would get out of poverty uh my belief is that people who are poor are not necessarily poor due to their own uh doing they're poor due to their circumstances and that it can be difficult to impossible to get out of that without the help of other people yes the idea that hard work is lacking in the working class is a fallacy straight away well yeah absolutely i mean like george osborne's comments about how uh, that you can he, he is fighting for people who are going out to work to see their next door neighbour with the blinds down because they're lying in because they're on benefits I mean it's just fiction it's just absolute fiction is that, is that nastiness you know. yes, it's likely to be the blinds down because they've just done a night shift and they're getting a couple of hours sleep before they do the day exactly. shift I, I, I talk about exactly this in my stand up like, it could be that they're on the night shift or it's their day off or they have children or that you know, they uh, work different days to other people Like it's, it's just mad 
Well, yes, I think left-wing bias going on today, uh, unashamedly so. And um, what, what could be more pleasing then to somebody holding views that I don't imagine embrace the banking class in a, a warm and cuddly way than the concept of the pinnacle being replaced before it's gotten off the ground more than about seven stories by the austerity tower yes there's the the possibility that the one billion pound pinnacle skyscraper on Bishopsgate, which has been gradually climbing up into the skyline is uh, likely to be scrapped altogether the seven floors that are there knocked down and uh, it's going to be replaced by the austerity tower according to trade magazine building we're not really sure what this austerity tower looks like i can't quite picture what, how, how do you say austerity in a building uh, is, are they actually going to call it austerity tower that would be that, that is what they're telling us that is imagine if they call it austerity. can you think of how how lacking in imagination and joy are they that they want to make a tribute to uh, such a depressing period in our history um, the, the pinnacle is lovely that's beautiful architecture what, what what's the reason for getting rid of it is, a, is it a financial thing is that is that the argument? Yes, I'm afraid the company's behind it. Well, I think I think they got uh, about two floors up before they realised they haven't got enough money to build the building. You'd have thought you'd work that out. <laughs> I, I like that. Build first, think later. Yes. Have we forgotten something here? Oh, we oh, we need money. Oh. <laughs> if only we were literally in the city where all the money is. <laughs> well, I, I, it quite pleases me, I've got to say, the idea of bankers going to work every day and having to walk past the austerity tower, which reminds them of the time they screwed everything up. <laughs> Do you know, I don't think that they'll be troubled by it. That's my feeling on that. I think that it will cause them zero hours of sleep loss. Here's a, a project that is potentially going to benefit from investment by private companies. And in fact, this is, well, there's, there's kind of two stories that sit next to each other quite nicely here. We've got the, the Boris Bikes story, and we've also got the Crossrail 2 route, which excited me when I saw it. But both of these, we're talking about potentially the investment from the private sector to get them off the ground or expanded. It's unaffordable now, isn't it? Quite frankly, I, I, as people might have guessed from my political leanings, I want the renationalisation of everything, and I'd quite like tax dodgers to pay for it, <laughs> the Tobin tax. Um, but uh, yeah, I suppose ultimately, what I really want is for uh, m- there to be a train station to every single point in London. I want my house to be a train stop, or your house to be a train stop. I, just I, want I don't want my house to be a train stop. Do, but I want to be able to get to your house easily. Why do you want to do that? It's just a case we need to do some baking together, just to hear your voice. I've got to be honest, if you're going to come over with some of these chocolates, we need to sort that out. You know what, I'm going to hand over to you for a minute to tell us all about these two stories, and I'm going to eat another of those chocolates. <laughs> so there, there are two stories here. Uh, the first one is uh, Crossrail 2, uh, the route that's been proposed, uh, which goes from South west london to north east london the second story is the boris bike scheme uh it's going to be expanded out to uh richmond park to old Ford lock to putney uh it's going to be uh, not expanded to places like chalk farm or bermsey spa or finsbury park where i live um which seems a bit mad to me like it seems odd that they are expanding so far out to richmond and yet they're not doing the more central places such as finsbury park perhaps i'm biased there but it seems more logical to be central and expand out uh, I assume that there's private money in it and I assume that certain councils are better than others nevertheless it seems a bit odd Who's your local council? Uh, I live in Finsbury Park so it's uh, Islington Islington right so uh, perhaps they haven't uh, dipped into their pockets to make this happen No because there's, there's not there's not one at Angel is there? I mean there, there is sort of on the, on the just south of Angel near King's Cross there's a bit there I don't know if that falls under Islington but like Angel itself going up Upper Street there are no hmm. Boris bike 
higher uh, centres there. Uh, I you'd think Angel would be, you know, even more than Richmond Park, Angel would be a key place. Why Richmond and not Angel? The different figures invested by the various councils as well, quite interesting. Tower Hamlets have put 1.9 million into the scheme. Lambeth, it's just going to cost them 200,000. Uh, Kensington and Chelsea, double that, 400,000. Um, meanwhile, Wandsworth and Hammersmith are paying £2 million apiece to uh, expand the scheme into their area. But I can't leave Crossrail 2 as, uh, as lightly dealt with there as we have. This is thoroughly exciting. It's not going to happen until 2030, or the 2030s, I should say, so even longer than that. By Luckily, which... I'm a patient man. Uh, yes, good. <laughs> You're just going to sit here and wait. Yeah. Oh, I, can't, I can't build. There's nothing I can do. You know, I can go and watch. I can go and I can take them cookies. I'd be happy to do that if it keeps them, unless it's a private company, in which case I don't. Uh, good. Sorry, I'll be delighted to hear that, though, I should think. This Crossrail 2 route, as you rightly say, it's coming, out from, uh, coming up from south-west London. Um, actually, it's not just Kingston. There's a whole bunch of different places. You can see a map on Londonist.com, and uh, there's a number of different there's stops. Twickenham. Epsom, I think it goes down to, doesn't it? And uh, various other stops down there. And then it goes all the way up. goes via Chelsea, Hackney, Victoria, and uh, Dalston Junction, and off up to the uppermost bits. I've got to say, I had a look at this map and you get used to where things are on the tube map and I know the tube map is is not representative of actual topography <laughs> but the Crossrail 2 map doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever <laughs> does it, does it? <laughs> I noticed that as well okay so so uh, Epsom and Kingston are that close together are they and then like Seven Sisters was like, it was almost like far to the south of uh, what was the what was the end of the oh, Chesham, Chesham seems to be directly north of Victoria for example yes it's, it's preposterous uh, I to uh, what I was saying before was that I, I like the idea of having just a hundred thousand routes crossrail two, three, four, five, six. I look forward to seeing the map in 2013 where there's just no white space, it's just colours, just colours and lines going everywhere. Literally everything is connected to everything. It's going to be mad. You're a maniac. Thank you very much. Um, let's move on. Uh, new developments in London elsewhere. In fact, since we're on the subject of uh, stories we know nothing about, let's go for the London dungeon to which neither of us have ever been. <laughs> Why have we never been? Uh, because you don't. Do you? When you live in London, you never go to the tourist attractions. Of course you don't. I've never been to. I've been to the London Eye because I went on it before I moved to London. Um, I've never been to the London Dungeons. I've never been to Madame Two Swords. It would never occur to me to go to any of these things. Uh, I saw Jersey Boys for the first time recently. You know the, the West End musical Jersey Boys would never have occurred to me to go and see that. But my parents were up and they wanted to see it, so I went along with them. It was amazing. I, I, I thought it would be like a dreamboat and petticoat style just ghastly terrible story that was manufactured to make money but Jezebel's was good just, just, just the story of Frankie Valley. Um, it's really fun but it would never have occurred to me to even go and see something like that because that seems like a tourist attraction rather than a event the sort of things that I go to are the sort of things that Londonists say here's some free events this week here's a thing you might not have heard about that's what that's what proper Londoners go to isn't it yeah, of, course, of course we don't go to the London we, Dungeons we got the, we got the good stuff <laughs> of course you have <laughs> Of course, it's closed now. Uh, January 31st, it uh, was its last day, yeah. the London Dungeon. But my, my favourite thing going down Tooley Street was uh, all the people who were covered in blood and fangs or axes sticking out of their heads or that sort of stuff, but they were off and having a fag break. <laughs> looking quite annoyed that anyone should be looking at them as well, I've got to say. Did you always feel like you'd have to tip them to see them out there? Like it's <laughs> And uh, well, I, I quite like this as well because there was a big hoo-ha a little while back. It resulted in a court case and an out-of-court settlement. Basically, the rival attraction, the London Bridge Experience, opened up more or less next door. 
And uh, it thoroughly upset the London Dungeon people, who, who aren't uh, just closing up completely. They moved over to the London Eye, which the same company owns. But I, I like the idea of an, another exhibition um, of a similar sort of nature opening up right next door. It's like if you put a yeah. shark on your roof and then a new neighbour moved in and they put a shark on their roof. <laughs> I like the idea of the London Bridge experience moving to wherever the London Dungeon go to. Like it's just one man who just wants to troll the London Dungeon. <laughs> The juiciest bit of all of this, actually, was the uh, clear-out sale that followed it. There was the Pimlico car boot sale in Lupus Street the following Sunday, and according to the uh, Telegraph, items on sale included torture and surgical equipment, severed limbs, false eyeballs, plague doctor's potions, and Sweeney Todd razors. I reckon there were a lot of comedians there buying props for their Edinburgh Festival shows. Good link, good link. <laughs> Smooth, I like Almost it. Almost seamless. You are possibly in the top 21 stroke 20 of the... Yeah, it's a, it's a very confused uh, ranking system you've got, but you did well at Edinburgh, basically. Yeah, well, one, one doesn't like to boast. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I had a really nice Edinburgh. It was very surprising, considering it was my first Edinburgh. Um, I took a show up to Edinburgh this year that was called Activism is Fun. Um, it's actually up on my website to download for free, chriscoltrain.com, if anyone wants to hear it. It's just a free download. Um, and I, I, I've been doing stand-up for four years now. I deliberately didn't go up to Edinburgh to even just do open mic gigs in the early days or anything because I didn't want to be noticed until I was competent. I use the word competent there because I don't want to say I'm good. I'm not. But, I, you know, I, I think I know what I'm doing now at least. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I took a show up that was basically a story of me getting involved in activism. It was the story of You Can Cut and my involvement with it, talking about the various silly protests we've done, talking about um, some fun spiky direct actions uh for example uh there's a man called dave hartnett who was one of the chief tax inspectors at hmrc and he personally let vodafone off of the six billion pound tax bill we found out he was doing a speech somewhere so we uh infiltrated we dressed up in suits uh and went to award him for his services to dodging tax we had a big celebration and we were kicked out we filmed it we put it on the internet it was a lot of fun um, and uh, we've done things like we've uh, turned Topshop into a school sports day, running around with egg and spoon races. We've turned Soho Square around the corner into a comedy club. Uh, we've turned Barclays into a comedy club as well. Me and Josie Long went in there and did stand-up in there uh, against their will. <laughs> um, and so it was just the story uh, about that, really, uh, plus a few other little things, um, like some uh, pro-choice activism that I've been involved with and some other anti-austerity things. Um, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot. Um, people were very kind to me. I think it was an advantage in that there isn't much political comedy at the moment, so it was quite easy to stand out. Um, if there's any comedians listening, please don't do political comedy. This is all I've got. <laughs> why, why so few political comedians? It's an interesting question, and it's one that if you ask... A hundred comedians will get a hundred different answers to. We, we surely live in highly politicised times. Well, there are a few schools of thoughts on this. Um, I, I think that part of it is to do with the way that the open mic circuit works at the moment. Um, there are for, for new up-and-coming comedians, there are a lot of gigs to, that you can only do if you bring a friend. Um, there's a little bit of pay to play not very much but there's quite a lot of you can only perform if you bring at least one friend and in my opinion if you have to bring an audience if you're constantly bringing friends you're less likely to experiment you're always going to bring your A game which is fine and I think that's going to bring a lot of very slick TV style comedians along but it means that people are less free to experiment and muck about and you need to have a space where you can just fail you can just go up and just do disastrously and go away and come back with something different and just learn and I, I think that 
the open mic scene isn't a very happy place at the moment and that is taking away a lot of that freedom to experiment and create and with political comedy you have to have such a high turnover of material because ultimately like most of the stuff we write has like a, a two-week shelf life at the most and some stories will come back um and edinburgh is okay because like you can sort of do a year and review at edinburgh but in terms of just doing circuit gigs like if you write political stuff then generally it has a short shelf life so you need to write a lot and so you know you're not going to want to keep doing that you know who is I almost know the answer to this I think who generates the most material for you <laughs> well I suppose in, in in actuality it's David Cameron because he calls the shots um, but Michael Gove is a ludicrous human being and he's generated some wonderful things like, like his whole thing about when he wanted to send out copies of the King James Bible to schools that he was going to personally sign I mean that almost writes itself but even that was taken to a new level when he found that the funding fell through for it and so a load of investment bankers stepped in to fund the King James Bible because you know Jesus well, the thing about Jesus is you know this uh, he was all about the investment bankers he loved all that he loved money uh, that was that quote that in, in the Bible he said you know you've got to diversify your portfolio you've got to speculate <laughs> it's just nonsense isn't it like, Michael Gove is a preposterous man there's another preposterous man <laughs> it's me it's you there's a there's another figure, of course, who, uh, who who crops up and is often well. People have such mixed opinions about this guy. Is he a figure of fun? Is he a deeply manipulative person? Is he highly intelligent? Is he a buffoon? Uh, that enigmatic quality going on there it mm. has uh, generated plenty of column inches, and uh, it's also uh, well. There's kind of a connection here, I think, in your mind, Chris, between Boris and the uh, the new local TV channel that's just been announced for London. This is one of 21 local channels launching on digital terrestrial TV around the country, and communications regulator Ofcom has announced that the uh, winning bid to run the London one will be uh, backed by the Evening Standard. It'll be called London live and the evening stand saw a four other bidders for the license and the license could run for 12 years well you know I, I think it could be very easy to be cynical about something like this i mean just just because the evening standard is both owned and edited by personal friends of boris johnson you know i don't think we need to read anything into that i don't i, I definitely don't think that the uh, london live tv channel will just be full of stories attacking ken and having a go at squatters and demonizing protesters and having a go at people on strike i don't think that'll happen i think it'll be fair and balanced and quentin that's my feeling so we've got potentially the same company in charge of both the major print organ and the local TV channel. They're just going to give Boris his own TV. They're going to give Boris his own chat show. That's what's going to happen. Or it will be like a Ubin Frame style compilation of Boris's gaffes and mishaps that people will just watch and then vote for him because he's got funny hair. That's what's going to happen. It's, I, 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 just, I think it's dangerous. I think that when you've got a situation where London's one newspaper and London's one TV channel um, are uh, owned by uh, Yevgeny Lebdev, who uh, has been on holiday with Boris Johnson, you know, when the Evening Standard is, is edited by someone uh, like Sarah Sands, who's a personal friend of Boris, like, I think that's dangerous. And like, uh, there's a journalist called Adam Bienkov who's done brilliant research on this. He, he uh, does some great blogging holding Boris to account. And he's talked about how he's talked with journalists evening standard who say that it's really hard to get stories that are critical of boris into the paper um unless they come from the angle of david cameron is attacking boris johnson and in fact adam's even done journalism to talk about how all of the public spats between boris johnson and david cameron 
are, are all fictional. They're, they're all planned ahead office. Like, you read the newspapers and you think, oh, David Cameron and Boris Johnson don't like each other, and possibly they don't. But the public spats are all pre-planned. It's all PR. Like, none of it is, none of it is truthful. Um, and I... I, I I, I, in principle, the idea of a London TV channel is a great thing. In practice, the people who own it, it leaves a bad smell for me. Well, this channel, and you can get the details as a PDF out to let you know what the channel is going to be offering. There's a PDF version of that, as I say, if you go to the story, Evening Standard Owners Win Licence for New Local TV Channel on London. That's a catchy title. <laughs> Over there was one. That's going to be going out to an estimated 4 million homes, and uh, they're promising 18 hours per day of broadcasting, rising to 24 if demand arises, and if, if Boris's show needs to go on a little bit longer. Do you know what? It's going to be 18 hours. You know that episode of Have I Got News For You that Boris Johnson was on, the one that everyone thinks sort of won him the heart of the nation, that one we presented it's going to be that for 18 hours it'll just be on repeat and then 6 hours of telly shopping see I wouldn't mind that (laughs) (laughs) I don't have to watch the telly shopping and I quite like the political quiz show (laughs) we've got a couple of other stories to dash through fairly quickly there's an extraordinarily uh, complex one uh, involving the Met we we should say something about the National Theatre though there's a good news story here 2.5 million from the Heritage Lottery Fund going to the National Theatre which really hasn't been touched in terms of his aesthetics since 1976 and uh, a lot of money going in and the modernisation of the foyer space is going to be one of the most noticeable things it'll be uh, reconfigured, open up to the South Bank path, bars and cafes refurbished and uh, in the meantime there's going to be a theatre space called The Shed which you can see taking shape right now. It's not a charming name is it? The Shed. It makes it sound like this has got space for ten people in it. <laughs> Who knows? <yeah. laughs> It depends if the, the, the same people behind the pinnacle are, are doing it, doesn't it? <laughs> I suppose it does. It could actually be just a shed. <laughs> it's just full of old holiday chairs, and you have to get past a load of lawnmowers to actually see the the play. I, I like the National Theatre. Uh, I think it's a wonderful place. I've seen a lot of wonderful shows there. I think we should demolish it. Just demolish it and start again. It's ugly. It's horrible. I don't think I really think that. I think I'm just being controversial. Um, but I don't, I, I don't like it, aesthetically. I'm glad someone's finally doing something to it. It seems to be in a constant state of repair, though. Like, even at the moment, like, half the cafe is closed because they're building. But that always seems to be... It, it seems like... It, even though it was officially built, was it 1968? It feels like they haven't finished it yet. Maybe that's like London in general. Like when London's finished, it's going to be brilliant. I like the look of these new public walkways which will overlook the production workshops at the National Theatre. Also, as someone that quite likes perving on actors, I think that could have a lot of appeal for me. Can I just go and watch them? Is that is that one? Well, I believe so, yeah. I don't know about perving. I think that might be forbidden. I'm, I'm very happy for National Lottery funding to go on me looking at pretty people. <laughs> Let's talk about the Met. This is going to be a barrel of laughs. <laughs> yeah, this is the story that construction workers from the Blacklist Support Group are going to challenge a decision by the Met uh, not to investigate claims that officers colluded with uh, an alleged industry blacklist, which is just an extraordinary idea. The idea that there, there might have been this blacklist of employees who were denied employment because they were involved in trade union work, because they were involved in health and safety work, uh, is, is obviously outrageous. Um, and even more so because it's all the major UK companies like Balfour Beatty and Langer Rook and uh, Sober Robert McAlpine who get all of these government contracts. You know, it, it, it's, it's just absolutely... 
outrageous. Yes, those those companies are alleged to uh, be involved, and the, the illegal database here, we're talking about 3,200 workers. That really is quite a substantial database. Of course, an illegal database if it existed, and it includes workers on uh, Crossrail, the Olympic Park, Portcullis House, and Wembley Stadium, amongst others. And, and this development in the story, of course, is that the police were told about it. It was the IPPC, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, were, were told about it last November. But apparently this went unrecorded and was dismissed as being too general. Well, I, 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 it doesn't surprise me that the Met have done this. Um, I have no faith in the police. I want to. I want to like the police because they're supposed to keep law and order. But looking at the things that they're alleged to have done since the phone hacking scandal, there are so many stories of police corruption coming out of police racism, of uh, police collusion, of police... Um, like the, the story that has been alleged recently in The Guardian of the undercover officers taking the identities of dead children and reusing their identities it's just sickening and this extra news story it's at a stage now where I just think yeah that that makes sense that fits in with what I know about the police and that's really sad Um, we've also got a sort of a a scrutiny issue here as well haven't we because when the Met is suspected of having done something wrong we could we could think of Ian Tomlinson for example or Plebgate or one of these things then uh, the, the IPPC will take the most serious cases and the, the rest of them and who's to say which are the more serious um, before they're investigated but the, the rest of them are farmed out to individual police forces for investigation you really can't help wondering whether that's a sensible course of action to have the police investigating themselves absolutely that comes back to what we were talking about earlier about how i just want a bit more democracy and i want a bit more accountability quite frankly like i don't think it is unreasonable to want to live in a society where the police are themselves held to account uh, you mentioned ian tomlinson perfect example uh ian tomlinson died like i just feel outraged like the the consequences of that for the police that were involved like they they if you and me had done the same thing we would have been punished and they weren't and that's just a perfect example the police are not held to account and i think that's frightening especially as an activist you know i mean we uh, is very. I, I used to like the police before I got involved in activism, and then I saw the sort of things they did. I've been at protests where I have seen the police kicking teenagers on the floor. I've seen that. That's happened. And there will be no consequences of that. No one will be punished. It will just get lost. There was a Yukon Cup protest we did where pepper spray was used. And the reason they used pepper spray uh, was because someone was trying to put a leaflet through a door. And so the police pepper sprayed them because they considered it to be a uh, uh, not vandalism, criminal damage. And I've seen these things, and I know they happen, and I know that it always goes unpunished, and that frightens me. For the sake of journalistic balance, we have to say that the police are not here to defend themselves or to respond to those allegations. Um, they probably so are. They're probably undercover police over there listening in. There's this fellow under the table, but I assumed he was laid on by the theatre. <laughs> oh, that guy, the guy with the policeman's outfit. <laughs> well, it's so over, for goodness sake. Uh, <laughs> a bandit lolitics. It's worth saying that if you're going to bring geese. Yeah, if you're going to bring your geese along, the answer is no. No geese at lolitics. Don't try geese a band. It's not. Basically, it's not a gig for geese. It's a gig for people. We're there to do politics. We're there to do jokes. Um, and like whenever I do advertise lolitics, I get like about five, six hundred people tweeting me saying, "Oh, can I bring my geese along?" It's like obviously no. Like, have you ever? Who's brought? You've never taken geese to a comedy club before. Why? Why would you even think to ask it? But I have to say it, because if someone tries, it's going to cause a... Just don't. Just don't try it. Because I don't want to get the police involved, because what will be the point? We've talked about that already. It'll be useless. You know, what will they do? They'll just cover it up. They'll probably kill the geese. You know, 
Uh, don't bring your geese is what I'm saying. I want to make that really clear. So they found Richard III under a car park in, uh, in Leicester. So we've started looking at uh, whether we can find any kings and queens hidden under London. And uh, also, hopefully, uh, we can relieve the whole pro-Tudor bias in the media generally. We're not interested here in things like the King George pub or something that's a very obvious connection with a monarch. But we are interested in kind of cryptic or uh, oblique references to kings and queens. So, for example, we were looking at Hanover Square in Mayfair. Now, Hanover Square is, is named after the ancestral home of George I. So we've got a, a kind of connection there. What else can we find? Can we dig up monarchs? Some of our readers have been able to. What have we got here, Chris? So uh, Kerry has said Henry the Seventh could be any of the Richmonds. Lancaster Gate could be Henry IV as well. He was Duke of Lancaster before he deposed Richard II and is the one who joined the Duchy with the Crown. Very good. We've got one uh, from Mark Mason on similar sort of territory here. Victoria could be either Queensway or Lancaster Gate. She was the Duke of Lancaster, as all reigning monarchs are, irrespective of sex. I didn't know that, did you? I didn't know that. Then again, I'm an idiot, so I don't know anything. We've got another one from Kerry. There's a Goodwin Court in NW1, according to Google Maps, uh, which could be Harold II, uh, Goodwinson. I, uh, in Finsbury Park, where I live, there's some digging at the moment, and um, we thought recently that we'd found the uh, skeleton of Elizabeth I, uh, but it turns out it's just someone who really looked like Elizabeth I. Very similar skeleton. Disappointing. Very, very disappointing. If you've got some regal connections that are hidden from public view in and around London, let us know. Uh, I, from my family tree, I can't imagine that I have any connections to anyone famous or anyone successful ever. Good. Uh, hello, a big hello to Wolfgang. Uh, I received a, a Twitter message from Wolfgang uh, at Londonist Sound. You know, week on week, I discover that we've got listeners really all around the world in the last couple of weeks I've been in touch with uh, people in Australia Kentucky um, a a town that's completely unpronounceable in Russia Um, I've recently heard from uh, Wolfgang who is uh, as the name suggests usually a resident of Germany I think he's from Mütchen and he is here in London for a couple of weeks with his wife so hi Wolfgang and hello Mrs Wolfgang also a shout out on behalf of our sponsor who this week is riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist if you follow that link you will be able to get free food which has got to be a good thing Riverford basically people who deliver nice organic fresh veg to your door and if you follow the link www.riverford.co.uk forward slash Londonist you can get half price veg box it's, uh, it's fresh it's seasonal it's organic uh, they also do fruit and meat and uh, it's very tasty by the looks of it. We're in the uh, the final movement of today's show, and it is, as ever, the London Week in History quiz. My my victim this week, Chris Coltrane. Five questions, all about the uh, the past week in London's history. Do you feel braced and ready? No, I'm going to be awful at this. This is going to be the proof of how stupid I am. Let's do it. This is the spirit. Okay, Monday, the fourth of February, nineteen fifteen. I need the name of the person who was born in Marylebone and he would go on to become a very successful entertainer as well as a cult film icon in Albania. <laughs> oh my god, what was the year? It was 1915 he was born. 1915? It's a cult figure in Albania? I have literally no idea. Uh, let me give you a clue. He's uh, a comic actor uh, in particular, although I know he has done, uh, I suppose you call them tragic roles, but he's definitely known for his slapstick Falling comedy. Charlie Chaplin? 
No, British, uh, British fellow as well. Flat, think flat caps. No, I don't know. You're not going to get Norman Wisdom. <laughs> oh God, of course it was. Norman Wisdom, who became a cult icon in Albania. No way, really. Yeah. Why? What for? Well, you'd assume his films, but maybe he did something. Uh, maybe he's like a Hasselhoff figure who went out and did uh, something. <laughs> I've, I've heard Hasselhoff recently described as having based a career on allegedly being famous in Germany, which <laughs> put a different spin on. We did an Edinburgh show this year um, that a, a lot of my friends went to see and said it was good, but I get the feeling it isn't for me. <laughs> Tuesday, the 5th of February, 1924. Tell me what was broadcast on BBC Radio for the first time. 1924 radio for the first time the news not the news no in fact I'm going to be it, it, you'd associate it with the news it's very close to the news but it's not a program it's not a, it's not a program okay so uh, the pips spot on sir yes good work yes it's the uh, the time signal the Greenwich time signal pips is there officially known Wednesday the 6th of February 1875 the first what is opened in St John's Wood, providing a place where a certain group of people are able to rest and consume refreshments. And uh, if you th- if you can get the trade that they're employed in, then you'll get what it is. So it's a pub or a cafe of some sort was opened around there. Yes, cafe's getting close. Cafe's getting close. Oh my goodness, what's what's like a cafe because a restaurant? There's no, that doesn't make any sense. Um, what's the, what's the trade that might usefully have a cafe to themselves? Writers. <laughs> I, I heartily endorse that idea, but no. <laughs> I know what. Uh, uh, any trade could any trade could have a cafe to themselves, couldn't they? It would need good parking around it. That literally no idea. It is a cabman's shelter. Oh wow! Yeah, so this is the first ever cabman's shelter, St John's Wood, eighteen seventy-five, and uh, this isn't looking very good at the moment. We've, we've got one out of three. That 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 is uh, exceeding my expectations of how well I would do at this. We've got a political question next. 7th of February, 1991. The IRA launches a mortar attack on which London building? I get the feeling that it was a Whitehall one, wasn't it? You're very, very close. Like, I I seem to remember that this is one where, like, didn't John Major hear it while he was at the House of Commons or something like that? Or am I mixing up my dates? No, John Major certainly did hear it, but he wasn't at the House of Commons. He was somewhere else. Ah, okay, so it's not Whitehall way. Where else would John Major be? Well, Whitehall, 10 Downing Street. It was 10 Downing Street. Oh, that's kind of Whitehall-ish. That's just off Whitehall. Precisely. Yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Good. Uh, No one was hurt. The attack did somewhat startle the Prime Minister. That's two out of four. Yeah. You could get a majority score here, uh, I'm, at least. I'm feeling confident. I think this is going to be a definite win. <laughs> your, your tune seems to have changed. Uh, Friday, the 8th of February, 1750. Tell me what causes minor damage to buildings in London. I'll give you three guesses. Uh, was it Monsters? It was not Monsters. It wasn't Monsters. Wow. Well, because you think Monsters would be the main thing that would do damage to buildings in the sort of the 17th, eight, well, the 18th century. That or geese. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like act of God. Well, that's very general, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Which act of God? Um, oh, was it some weather of some sort? Am I in the right ballpark there? Uh, no, not really. No, I'll give you one more. Wow. Okay. So it's the se- it's the early 18th century. Something does damage to a massive building. So it's 1715. Minor damage to an, a, a large number of buildings. Oh. Okay. Uh, oh, it's obviously asteroids. It obviously is not. It is uh, a minor earth tremor. No way. Where? Way. Uh, in London. 
It were, it were like the whole of London. Like. <laughs> no idea. Don't ask me where. I've no idea. Uh, check it out. Yeah, apparently. Yeah, 1750 earthquake time. Wow. It could happen again. It could. They, well, it did. Do you remember? No. Middle of the night. And uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, an earthquake that was centred on, I think, Birmingham or somewhere up in the Midlands. Oh, yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in Haringey at the time. I felt it. Did you? Weirdly, nobody else in the building did. Are you sure you felt it? Are you sure it wasn't just... Do you have a twin that was in Birmingham and like, you felt their sadness? No, I'm feeling my own sadness at the moment. Let us tie this off. We need to uh, establish your whereabouts for important events coming up. <laughs> um, uh, I, I'm on the internet. I'm on Twitter, Chris underscore Coltrane. Uh, my show is free to download at chriscoltrane.com. Um, if you'd like to come see me live, not very much like if you did, then come to Lolitics, um, which is on the third Tuesday of every month at the Black Heart in Camden. Um, if you don't remember that, then follow me on Twitter and I'll always tweet the links. Uh, also, I'm doing two gigs here at the Soho Theatre. I'm doing one near the end of March. I'm doing a gig, gig called Comedy Club for Kids, which is specifically for children. Um, adults can only come if they bring a kid, and I'm going to do 15 minutes of puns for that because I have a sideline in puns. Um, I should mention that. My friend Beck Hill runs a brilliant gig called The Pun Run in Camden again. Uh, and I'm the regular act there. I write a new five minutes based around a theme for everyone. So I've got, as well as doing political comedy, I've just also inexplicably got all of these puns as well. <laughs> so I'll be doing some of those, the more kid-friendly ones down here at the Soho Theatre. And also, April 1st, uh, I am doing the Alternative Comedy Memorial Society, which is uh, my favourite name of any live comedy show in the world. It's a wonderful, experimental creative night here uh, basically the one rule is no straight stand up so the comics come down and do unique things for the night they do characters they do weird experimental things it's run by uh, John Luke Roberts and Tom Tuck who just compare it beautifully it's, uh, it's well worth checking out and that's on April 1st wow busy time <laughs> yeah there's a lot going on plus Edinburgh I'll be doing um, another Edinburgh show this year um, I'd love it if people came along to previews to watch my show the show this year is going to be called Compassion is Subversive and um, it's going to be basically an hour of me attacking the Tories uh, and, uh, and that. So if that appeals, I'd love it if you come along. Well, Compassion, of course, was a Tony Blair concept, wasn't it? Uh, did he invent it? I think, oh, I, I think he was the first person ever to exhibit Compassion. <laughs> yeah, before then, everyone was very cold. And then Tony Blair came along and bombed Iraq with his compassion. OK, so we, we uh, finish as we began with politics. And uh, Chris Coltrane, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Cheers. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guest, Chris Coltrane. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley, Rhea Heath and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. And I'm N. Quentin Wolfe.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.